Many people today see Jesus as a useful icon. What do I mean by that? I mean, statistics show that 76% of Americans call themselves Christians. Now, if you've paid attention to the statistics, it used to be something like 92%. Now it's 76% of people say that they're Christians in America. Only 36% of that 76 attend church. So what does that tell you about the majority of people that profess to be Christians? As a sociologist, Peter Berger said, if India is the most religious country on our planet and Sweden is the least religious, America is a land of Indians ruled by Swedes. We're the most religious land, but we're filled with irreligious people. People think of Jesus as the example to look up to. You know, Jesus was the epitome of love. But they're not really even sure what that means. They're not really sure who Jesus was. They just have this stereotypical view that Jesus was all about peace, all about love, and, and nothing bad. And we should all be more like Jesus. And he's someone that we want to add to our repertoire, but we don't want him to rule in our lives. To look at God as a genie in, that helps out in distress when hurricanes happen or tragedies happen, we look at God as someone that intervenes and helps us out. When you're going through a tough time, people like to think of hope. As we talked about in the, the past couple of weeks, people like to think of peace or hope that there is something in the, the life after this one. But people don't really take the time to figure it out. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus when he came down to this earth? And they're not willing to accept who Jesus was either. So as we look at the text in John chapter 6 today, I need to give you some background first. There are a bunch of people that were around Jesus, about 5,000 people. They're really hungry in the beginning of this chapter. And so Jesus testing his disciples, not because he really wanted to know. He was like, wow, it's a lot of people. How are we going to feed them? And the disciples are like, well, it's a little too late to buy food, Jesus. And, well, we got this little kid over here, and he's got some stuff. Maybe we could split it around. And Jesus did, uh, performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And there's more bread and fish uh, to feed everyone that was there. And so, because of this amazing miracle that Jesus performed, feeding of the 5,000, believe it or not, people actually came looking for Jesus. Who was this guy that just fed us? out of nowhere, did this amazing wonder. So this is the backdrop that we're looking at when we enter into this text. So if you look at verse 22 of chapter 6, it says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no, boat, no other boat there, except that the one his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Well, that's great. They're looking for Jesus. That's a good thing, isn't it? And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. You see, the people weren't looking to Jesus for the right reasons. They were looking to Jesus so that he would give them more food. That's literally what they were doing. The people were walking around like, oh man, maybe we can get more free food if we hang around Jesus. So they were looking at Jesus saying, oh Jesus, what are you doing here? That's awesome. Now maybe you'll give us some free food. And Jesus talks to them and says, do not labor for the food that perishes. In other words, do not work for the things that pass away. So many of us are working for stuff that's here on this earth that can only be attained here on this earth that passes away after a short time. Jesus said, instead, labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. What kind of food is that? What kind of food could it be that never spoils? What could it be that you have bread that doesn't get mold? What could it be that there's food that endures to everlasting life? I mean, these people are probably really confused. It's not just food that endures to everlasting life, but a food that gives you a new kind of life. Because normal food sustains you for a couple hours, right? But then it leaves you hungry. You eat something, you eat a sandwich, no matter how good the sandwich is, in a couple hours you'll be hungry again. What kind of food can not only give you energy, but a renewed vision, bringing color to your world, could give you eternal life? A food that does not leave you empty. Uh, one of my favorite things to eat in the entire world is in New York City at this ramen restaurant called Ibudo. And you're probably all thinking of the wrong thing right now. You're probably thinking of a couple of new ramen, like the instant stuff that you get for like 25 cents. It's not that. It's like these Japanese noodles that are authentic and the broth, it like soothes and it just like enters your nostrils and the spices. You can like, ah, oh, it's so good. And if I could have an everlasting ramen that just fills forever. You know, when I eat the ramen, it's like I want to take my time with it because I know it's fading, it's fleeting. It's going to go away after I'm, I'm done eating it. Actually, last time I was there, it was only a couple weeks ago, and I ate it in like five minutes, and I was so sad. I wanted to order more, but I was already full. And I was just like, but oh, it was so sad. But you guys have to go there sometime. So in other words, this is, this is more than just your favorite food, right? This is a food that endures to eternal life, a food that keeps you satisfied. It doesn't leave you longing for more. It keeps you satisfied in that moment so that you have this permanent, uh, eternal satisfaction. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So the people wanted to know, what do I do to achieve that kind of food? They're thinking, wow, that's got to be pretty awesome to have eternal food. That's, that sounds good. What do we have to do to achieve it? Many people, I think especially around this time of year, you set New Year's resolutions, right? Why do you set New Year's resolutions? Why do you think that is? Raise your hand. Why do people set New Year's resolutions? Really, no one knows. We just live our lives and we have no idea why we set resolutions. Vinny. Goals to strive for. Why do we strive for things? Joy. I have no idea what you said. Do things differently than we did the year before, but why? What's so great about that? Joe. 
To be a better people, why? Eddie. Okay, we're doing stuff different, but it just still doesn't tell me why I should. Why should I set goals? Why should I be a different person? Why should I be a better person? Yeah. To satisfy myself. We're all looking for a greater way to satisfy ourselves. And so we'll set New Year's resolutions. Some of the most popular New Year's resolutions are as follows. To tame the bulge, as it said. Now, none of you guys have that problem, but I guess as you get older, and I'm not looking forward to it either, but you need to tame the bulge that's within you. It sounds biblical, but it's not. But the problem is, no matter how fit you get, you know, guys always want to lift weights and you always want to get bigger and look stronger. No matter how strong you get, even Arnold Schwarzenegger, as big as he was, now his biceps are upside down. <laughs> Gravity works against you. Your skin starts to seep. Some people would say, well, my New Year's resolution is to learn something new. That's another really popular one. So you practice and you have dedication to obtain what? Why? Why do we learn a new instrument? Why do we go and help others? What? what what should I be working towards? And this, this is the question that they were wondering. What should I be working towards to obtain an abundant life? Jesus answers in verse 29. He said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus basically says, Trust me, because you can't obtain it. You can only receive it. The thing that you're looking for, the fulfillment that everyone's looking for, and the reason why everyone's setting New Year's resolutions cannot be obtained and achieved through works, only received through what God has only, uh, already done, only by believing in Jesus. So the people asked, prove it. Why should we believe anything that you say? Okay, you, you made some bread. That's awesome. You should be a baker. You'd probably be famous. But prove to us that what you say is true. And he says in verse 30, Therefore they said to him, the people said, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. <clears throat> so they're still stuck on this bread thing. Like Jesus is trying to move them from one place to another, trying to like teach them like, all right, children, let's go over here, talk about eternal life or like, they're still stuck on bread. Like, how good is this bread that extends to eternal life? Our fathers in the desert, they ate manna. For those of you that don't know what manna is, you can look it up in the book of Exodus. But literally, people were walking around in the desert like, I'm so hungry, there's nothing to eat. Oh my gosh. Or they said God because they were actually crying out to God. And, but I don't want to, you know, confuse you and make you think that I'm using his name in vain. So anyway, they're walking around and calling out to God. And then God's like, fine, I'll give you food. I'll give you bread. And so they woke up in the morning, and there's bread on the ground all over the place. Like, what is it? They're like, I don't know. So they named it, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Very creative. They must have been really bored <laughs> for 40 years in the desert. They could just name things, what is it? So anyway, Moses was their example. Moses did all these wonders in their eyes. You know, we know the backstory of Moses, that he was timid. He's like, I don't want to do this. And Jesus is like, well, I'm calling you anyway. 
But Moses was their example. He was the one who performed those miracles, those 10 plagues, opened up the Red Sea. We know it was the power of God, but Moses was their leader, their spiritual father in a sense. So they're saying to Jesus, well, you, you must have some good bread, but is it better than our father's bread, the manna, the what is it that Moses brought to us long ago? Verse 32, Jesus said to him, Moses, surely I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. The people wanted this bread. This is the thing they've been looking for. Sounds great. Sounds awesome. We've been waiting for someone to bring something greater than Moses. We've been waiting for God to come down, perform a miracle, do something radical in our lives. We've been tired of the way that we've been living. We're setting New Year's resolutions. We're doing things differently this year. But we want God to intervene in our lives so that we look at our lives and we, we know that we have changed. We don't want to remain the same. We want something different. They want bread that will give flesh to the bones of their lives. But no matter what things you are pursuing in the world, if they aren't from God, they will always leave you empty. No matter what you eat, no, no matter what you take in, if it's of the world, it will leave you empty. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Every single person has a need to think, not just now, but in eternity. Think about it. If we were just all part of natural selection and evolution and there was no God, why would we care about what people in 10 billion years think of us? Why do we feel like we have to make a mark on this world? Why do we feel like we have to invent something new or do something radical that will be remembered long after we're dead? Because if we die, we're, we die. That's it. But the fact is God placed eternity in our hearts so that we want to be remembered. We want to last for eternity even if our bodies decay. We want to make a name for ourselves. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 through 17 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me ask you a question. Break down this point a little bit more. Do you ever feel lonely? I venture to say that you do. I think everyone feels lonely at some point in time. In fact, even famous people are lonely. Albert Einstein said, it is strange to be known so universally and yet to be so lonely. Thomas Wolfe said, loneliness is and always has been the central and inevitable experience of every man. I think no matter if we're introverts, you know, you keep to yourself, or you're an extrovert and you can just talk to anyone, we all have a point in which we are lonely. Introverts think, if only I was more outgoing, I'd be able to make those friends at youth group. If only I was more outgoing, I'd be able to be popular in my school. And the extroverts are the opposite. They still feel loneliness because they think no one knows the real me. Everyone feels this, sees this superficial side of me, but they don't know who I really am. And we all have this tendency to feel lonely. But in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 
Do you understand that Jesus, when he said, I have come down from heaven, Jesus came to this earth, came to be with us always so that you would never have to be lonely. Jesus came to be with you, sending his Holy Spirit. So no matter if you're, you feel alone or you're physically the only person around, Jesus is living in your heart and you're never truly alone. In verse 63, later in the chapter, Jesus says, it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Because you see, Jesus doesn't just speak empty words that pump you up for a little bit. They hype you up and then they leave you empty afterwards. He's not a motivational speaker. Jesus isn't about that. He doesn't really care about hyping you up and making you feel excited in the motions. He's not about you being in this worship experience and raising your hands so they feel pumped up for the moment or the Saturday night, Saturday night of the retreat so you're really excited, crying tears, and then you go home empty. He's not about that. He's about giving words of life that produce effects. Because you see, Jesus' words are life itself. Now this is going to trip you out because it tripped me out. Jesus' words have the power to shape reality. When Jesus says stuff, you know, we'll, we'll say things. We, sometimes we, we don't mean them. Sometimes we'll exaggerate. Sometimes we lie. Jesus can't lie. And Jesus' words have the power to change reality, to shape it, to mold it, to form it. Let me give you examples. When Jesus created the world, when God created the world, out of nothing, how did he do it? Let there be light. When Jesus was on the boat and the disciples were freaking out because of the storm, what did he say? Peace, be still, and all was still. Jesus, in fact, is the author of our faith. Here's another trippy thing that I was thinking about. I was talking about this with Christian just last night going home. If you, if you look at any book or any story, there's themes, there's motives, there's uh, an overlying uh, theme or character traits, things that you'll interpret into a story, like Chronicles of Narnia, you have Aslan and Aslan represents God and all these things, but you know they're really not there. They're just things that you throw in there. You make it convenient for yourself as an author. But God, when he wrote the Bible, not only is it historical, but God is the author. So when he makes his word known, the things that happen, the types, you know, Jesus being the bread, these are things that happen in history that we can look to and say, wow, Jesus is the author of of the universe. He's the author of history itself. When you look at the 10 plagues and you look at the types of Jesus in the Old Testament, these are things that actually happened, but they still have a secondary meaning in their types because Jesus is the author of our faith. So when Jesus says words, he doesn't just use them. He doesn't just, uh, just throw them out there so that we can be like, oh, wow, that fluffed me up, that pumped me up. But they mean something and they have a lasting effect. When Jesus breathes in life into Adam the breath of life into that lifeless body it becomes alive when he commands the darkness to become light it becomes light so when Jesus says to you lo I am with you always even to the end of the age you know that means something